0: Section 2 of The Life of Viscount Palmerston by Lloyd Charles Sanders. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 1. Lord Palmerston and Toryism, 1807 to 1830, Part 2. Palmerston's interests were wide, though possibly not very deep, Sir Henry Holland, his doctor, found that he took pleasure in hearing of the latest discoveries in the physical sciences, more especially astronomy, chemistry, and mechanics, and that he had a singular ability in comprehending the importance of their objects and results. But science had to be made attractive for Palmerston, and while Sir Henry Holland amused him, he was bored by Wheatstone. I watched him writes sir henry taylor as he listened to a somewhat prolonged exposition by professor wheatstone of certain new devices he had been busied with for the application of telegraphy the man of science was slow the man of the world seemed attentive the man of science was copious the man of the world let nothing escape him the man of science unfolded the anticipated results another and another the man of the world listened with all his ears and i was saying to myself his patience is exemplary but will it last forever when i heard the issue god bless my soul you don't say so i must get you to tell that to the lord chancellor and the man of the world took the man of science to another part of the room and bounded away like a horse let loose in a pasture where art was concerned lord palmerston was somewhat of a barbarian when he paid a visit to berlin he was pleased with the frescoes of cornelius but chiefly because of their size and when it was hoped that the treasury would buy the soulage collection sir henry cole found him quite dead to the beauties of italian art once or twice looking at the majolica he said to me what is the use of such rubbish to our manufacturers? It is unnecessary to dwell long upon Palmerston's personal character. His was a bright, sunny nature, buoyant and self-reliant. The jaunty gait was an outward sign of the inward disposition. Sir Henry Holland, who attended both Lord Palmerston and Lord Aberdeen, notices in his interesting recollections the singular contrast of their natural temperaments the inborn vivacity and optimism of the former pervaded his life both public and private rescuing him in a great degree from many of those anxieties which press more or less upon every step of a minister's career he had a singular power of clear and prompt decision and was spared that painful recurrence to foregone doubt which torments feebler minds. Lord Aberdeen habitually looked at objects and events through a more gloomy atmosphere. Palmerston, Sir Henry also tells us, had a wonderful power of mastering bodily pain, and would work almost without abatement under a fit of the gout which would have sent other men groaning to their couches but though he had little consideration for his own infirmities he was filled with tender solicitude for his friends when they were in sickness or distress his correspondence with his brother are full of anxious inquiries and affectionate recollections while a letter of advice to lord shaftesbury who had fallen into pecuniary difficulties through the dishonesty of his steward which is preserved in mr Hotter's life of that great philanthropist proves palmerston to have possessed a delicacy and refinement of sympathy with those to whom he was attached for which the outside world would have been slow to give him credit his hearty jovial conversation and deportment the ha ha style as an observer in the house of commons called it which appears according to mr kinglake to have been considered not quite correct by the denizens of the Whig Olympus, also made him extremely popular with servants and peasantry. A pleasant anecdote has been recorded of a visit paid by him in 1863 to an old woman named Peggy Forbes, who had been a servant at Dugald Stewart's in 1801, and of her production of a box of tools, the property of young Meister Henry, which she had preserved from her affection for him. His faults, like his virtues, lay rather near the surface, but as the chief of them, flippancy and a certain measure of unscrupulousness will frequently be exposed in the events of his public life, it is unnecessary to sermonize on them. And as second-hand descriptions of character are flat and unprofitable when the originals are obtainable, it will be enough to add, before quitting the topic, the evidence as to Lord Palmerston's many virtues given by his best friend, Lord Shaftesbury, on the occasion of his death. I lose, wrote Lord Shaftesbury, a man who I knew, esteemed, and loved me far beyond every other man living. He showed it in every action of his heart, in every expression of his lips, in private and in public as a man, and as a minister. His society was infinitely agreeable to me, and I admired every day more his patriotism, his simplicity of purpose, his indefatigable spirit, his unfailing good humor, his kindness of heart, his prompt tender and active consideration for others in the midst of his heaviest toils and anxieties. He was a fine specimen of the English gentleman, and of the long list of his illustrious contemporaries had perhaps most in common with Lord Derby, whom he equalled in parliamentary courage and excelled in tenacity, though he was inferior to him in oratory and classical culture. Such was Lord Palmerston, the man throughout his life, and such was Lord Palmerston, the statesman, down to the year 1827, when the illness of the premier dissolved the Liverpool ministry. He stood, as Lord Dawling points out, almost alone, belonging to none of the particular sections into which the House of Commons was divided. Indeed, throughout his career he was a parliamentary Ishmaelite, and his intimate friends were almost exclusively non-political. On most subjects, particularly on the question of Catholic emancipation, he was in sympathy with Canning, and afterwards accepted with pride the title of Canningite. But he had little personal connection with that statesman, and did not follow him out of office. His contempt for the Eldonite section of the party, the stupid old Tory party, who bawl out the memory and praises of Mr. Pitt while they are opposing all the measures and principles which he held most important, was infinite. The Chancellor was to him, in his correspondence, an old woman. Liverpool, a Spoonie. Westmoreland, an ignoramus. Bethurst, a stumped-up old Tory. Some of them repaid him in kind. About eight months before the dissolution of 1826, he found that he was to be opposed at Cambridge, where he had been returned since 1811, by two of his own colleagues, Copley, Afterwards, Lord Lyndhurst, the Attorney General, and Goulburn, the Chief Secretary for Ireland, both, of course, anti Catholics. A most laborious canvass was thereby entailed, during which Palmerston had to contend with all the influence that Lord Eldon, Bethurst, and the Duke of York could bring to bear upon him. In the end, he triumphed, for though Copley headed the poll, Palmerston beat Goulburn by 192. This, he writes in his autobiography, was the first decided step toward a breach between me and the Tories, and they were the aggressors. Several incidents of importance, more or less intimately connected with his business at the War Office, mark this period of Palmerston's life. In 1815 and 1818, he visited France and recorded his observations in journals of which extracts have since been published written when the memories of great events were fresh in the minds of those with whom he came in contact they are full of interest and the secretary at war's own remarks are well worth perusal his estimate of the relative merits of the allied armies is striking our men certainly do not look so smart and uniform in a body as the prussians and russians but still they have a more soldier-like air they look more like business and fighting. The foreign troops look like figures cut out of card, ours like a collection of living men. The former move like machines, ours without any irregularity or break, yet bear the appearance of individual vigor. Their men seem to depend entirely on each other, ours look as if they moved independently and yet with equal uniformity as a mass, in short, one marks a character of individual energy about our people which one does not see in theirs. A still more critical event occurred to Lord Palmerston in the spring of the year in which he paid his second visit to France. On the 8th of April, as he was ascending the stairs at the war office, he was shot at by Lieutenant Davies of the 62nd Regiment. Davies had written two letters to the secretary at war requesting an interview, but they were so evidently the work of a madman that the request was refused. A slight wound on the back was the only result, and the man who was defended on his trial at Lord Palmerston's expense was consigned to Bedlam. When, on the retirement of Lord Liverpool in 1827, Mr. Canning was entrusted by George IV, with the formation of a government, Palmerston was naturally one of the men whose cooperation he would be the first to select. A fusion of Canningites and Whigs was inevitable, owing to the refusal of the Aldenite faction to take part in the ministry, and the secretary at war's easy temper and moderate views clearly qualified him to play a prominent part in a coalition ministry it was but natural that he should be offered the seat in the cabinet and the office of chancellor of the exchequer which he had refused years before and it was but natural that he should accept the offer unfortunately other ministerial arrangements had necessitated a contest at cambridge so it was decided on the advice of crocker that palmerston while immediately advanced to cabinet rank should remain at the war office until the end of the session, when the other contests having been decided, he would be returned unopposed on the acceptance of office. About the middle of the session, however, Canning sent for Palmerston and told him with considerable embarrassment that he found that it was more convenient that the Chancellor of the Exchequer should also be First Lord, and that both offices should be united in the person of the Prime Minister, the result being, he said, that he was unable to carry out the intended arrangement. Though he suspected that Canning was being made the cat's paw of the King, who personally hated him, and wanted Mr. Harries to take the exchequer, Palmerston good-humouredly replied that he was perfectly content to remain where he was, and he even went out of his way to make the Prime Minister's mind easy, by pointing out that as the Secretary of War was at present administering the discipline and patronage of the army, the office of Commander-in-Chief being vacant through the death of the Duke of York, he might well rest satisfied with his position. In the same pleasant way he brushed aside two attempts to get rid of him, both of which may fairly be traced to the hostility of george the fourth when offered the governorship of jamaica he roared with laughter in canning's face and to a third proposal that he should become governor-general of india he replied that he had no family to provide for and that his health would not stand the climate the untimely death of canning was followed by the ludicrous efforts of goody godrich to form and keep together an administration which terminated, as the world knows, by the premier bursting into tears in the royal closet, and the king lending him a handkerchief to wipe them away. Palmerston was once more offered the chancellorship of the exchequer, and once more asked to release the premier from the offer as the king wished for Harry's, though the latter had already declined the post on the ground of ill health. Again, Palmerston gave up his claims with easy good humour, though Huskisson, now generally recognised as the leader of the Canningites, told him that he should have pressed them home. With the cat-and-dog existence of the ministry, he seems to have troubled himself very little, foreseeing in all probability that its life would be brief. On the resignation of Godrich, the Duke of Wellington undertook to carry on affairs and at once opened negotiations with Huskisson as the head of the Canning party. Though Palmerston had only a few months before, in a letter to his brother, pronounced against the formation of a government like Liverpool's, consisting of men differing on all great questions and perpetually on the verge of a quarrel, the little band agreed that they would accept office, not as individuals, but as the friends of Mr. Canning. Lord Dudley was to carry out the principles of the departed statesman in foreign affairs. Huskisson and Charles Grant, Lord Glenelg, in colonial and commercial matters. Lamb, Lord Melbourne, as chief secretary, would secure toleration for the Irish Catholics. Palmerston kept his old post. The natural results followed grave divergences of opinion manifested themselves on every subject of importance and the cabinet usually separated without coming to a decision abroad the chief difficulty that pressed for a solution was the revolution in greece which had been brought to a crisis through the destruction of the turkish fleet by admiral codrington at the battle of navarino that independence in some shape or form must be granted to the greeks by the powers was now inevitable but while the collective voice of the cabinet pronounced the battle to be an untoward event and while the tory section was in favour of cutting down the territory and liberties of the new nation to the narrowest possible limits from fear of its becoming a pawn in the hands of russia the canningites were disposed to let things take their course and to restore to greece the sacred places where lingered the memories of her immortal past as palmerston afterwards pointed out a greece was an absurdity which contained neither athens nor thebes nor marathon nor salamis nor plataea nor thermopylae nor Missolonghi. when he proposed that an effort should be made to redeem the greek women and children who had been carried into slavery at alexandria the duke received the proposition coldly aberdeen treated the matter as a thing we had no right to interfere with bethurst as the exercise of a legitimate right on the part of the turks and ellenborough as rather a laudable action on home affairs the same difference of views cropped up at every turn a dispute between the rival factions of the cabinet on the duty to be imposed on corn produced the temporary resignation of Charles Grant. And finally, in May of 1828, after five months tenure of office, the Canningites retired in a body on the trivial question of the disenfranchisement of the corrupt borough of East Retford. In the division on the bill, Huskisson, who considered himself bound by previous pledges, voted against the government. Palmerston and Lamb followed his example. They were in the minority, and considering the difficulties with which the Duke was surrounded on all sides, it is improbable that he would have taken any notice of their conduct. Huskisson, however, sent him a foolish letter of resignation, and Wellington weary of perpetual broils and disliking the bourgeois assurance of the chief of the canningites determined to pin him to his word in vain the other canningites attempted mediation it is no mistake said the duke it can be no mistake and shall be no mistake thereupon they held council together and decided lord dudley being sorely unwilling that as they had entered the cabinet in a body they must retire in a body. Palmerston, accordingly, shook the dust of pigtail Toryism as he styles it in one of his letters from his feet, and Sir Henry Harding reigned at the war office in his stead. In opposition, he found his opportunity. Hitherto the trammels of office and want of ambition had caused him to remain placidly among the second rank of politicians now he was unmuzzled and had tried his strength in a succession of cabinets. His correspondence throughout the years immediately preceding his retirement shows how great was his interest in continental affairs, and it was to the Greek war of liberation and to the usurpation of Dom Miguel in Portugal that he turned for the main sources of his inspiration rather than to startling series of events which began with the return of O'Connell for Clare, and concluded with the passing of the Catholic Emancipation Act, though he spoke on the measure and prophesied, though, as the event proved falsely, that it would open a career of happiness to Ireland which for centuries she had been forbidden to taste. In 1822 Crocker had considered him deficient in that flow of ideas and language which can run on for a couple of hours without on the one hand committing the government, or on the other hand lowering by commonplaces or inanities the station of cabinet minister. But in 1829 Greville called a speech of his, the event of the week, and observed that he had at last launched forth and with astonishing success. In fact, Palmerston set the seal to his fame as an orator, by the speech which was made on the 1st of June and which dealt with the relations between England and the nations of Europe. The display was nominally made in support of a motion of Sir James Mackintosh on the affairs of Portugal, but through the indulgence of the House Palmerston was allowed to descant on foreign affairs generally. The burden of this elaborate indictment is to be found in the statement that England, lately the friend of liberty and civilization, was now the keystone of that absolutist arch of which Miguel, the Portuguese usurper, and Spain and Austria and the Sultan Mahmud were the component parts. He complained that Greece had been treated with scanty generosity, that with regard to the conflict between Russia and Turkey, the Wellington ministry had not made bona fide efforts to bring about peace, and so to prevent the conflagration from spreading over Europe by setting their faces on the one hand against territorial acquisition by Russia and, on the other hand, by resisting stoutly and firmly the intrigues of other powers to stimulate the obstinacy of Turkey. Three-fourths of the speech dealt with the condition of affairs in Portugal, and the Speaker undoubtedly made out a very strong case for censure. The government had professed to act on the principle of non-interference. In reality, they had interfered constantly, only on the wrong side. In a sketch of the relations which had prevailed of late years between England and Portugal, Palmerston pointed out that it was on english advice that Dom pedro the emperor of brazil had acted when he abdicated his rights to the throne of portugal in favour of his little daughter dona maria the conditions of that abdication had been the marriage of the young queen when she was of age with her uncle don miguel who swore at vienna in the presence of the british ambassador to maintain as regent the laws of portugal and the institutions granted by don pedro having taken these vows with the intention of breaking them miguel paid a visit to the english court on his way to lisbon and so the king of england had been made a stalking horse under whose cover this royal poacher had crept on his unsuspecting prey miguel had marched to his palace surrounded by british troops and so encouraged the constitutional party to make no secret of their aims and aspirations but when he had broken his oath dissolved the constitutional chambers and proclaimed himself king the contingent of british troops after playing a tacitly acquiescent part had been withdrawn from lisbon during the reign of terror which followed, under which no less than five British subjects had been imprisoned without trial. The English government had indeed remonstrated, but without the slightest result. Buonaparte, in the plenitude and insolence of his power, never treated the humble representative of a petty German principality with more contemptuous disregard than that which our remonstrances had met with at the hands of don miguel if don miguel had been treated as a spoiled and favorite child great harshness had on the other hand been employed by the wellington administration toward the loyalist party when miguel had declared their stronghold oporto to be in a state of blockade the british government had hastened to acknowledge the blockade when the loyalist refugees in England had demanded to be allowed to go to the assistance of Terciera in the Azores, which still held out for Dona Maria, permission had been refused on the ground that they could not be allowed to sail from a British port. And when they had fitted out an expedition in defiance of the Duke's command, they had been stopped by a British vessel. The blood of unarmed and defenceless men was shed in the only harbour of their sovereign and under the shadow of her flag and the navy of england heretofore accounted the protector and the avenger of the injured was made the subservient tool of injury and oppression this speech is perhaps as characteristic an example as there exists of palmerston's earlier oratory on the whole it must be pronounced decidedly second-rate when compared with the great masterpieces of British forensic art. The reader searches in vain for the concentrated brilliancy of phrase which has given immortality to the utterances of Chatham. The purpurei pani are there, and on occasion passages of the most errant claptrap. For instance, when the kissing of little Dona Maria by George IV on the occasion of her visit to england is termed a recognition in which the inborn nobleness of royal nature contrived to infuse into the dry forms of state ceremonial something almost partaking of the charm and the spirit of chivalrous protection still less should the reader expect to find any of those profound deductions drawn from the knowledge of mankind and the head-springs of philosophy which are features of the style of Burke, he is favoured instead with the following reminiscence of Dugald Stewart's pupil-room. There is, in nature, no moving power but mind, and all else is passive and inert. In human affairs this power is opinion, in political affairs it is public opinion, and he who can grasp the power with it will subdue the fleshly arm of physical strength and compel it to work out its purpose. In short, the speech seldom rises above the commonplace, either in thought or in language. An elaborate metaphor resolves itself on examination into our old friends the great ship and the puny insect at the helm. Still, with certain deductions, the speech must be pronounced a performance of genuine and peculiar merit. It is evidently, like all of the more elaborate of Palmerston's earlier efforts, the result of very careful preparation, and taken as a whole, it contains a well arranged and complete statement of the grounds of righteous indignation entertained by the people at large against the Wellington administration. Throughout his life, Lord Palmerston's main strength lay in his exposition of a case, whether for the prosecution or the defence, and this strength is exhibited even more markedly in his dispatches than in his set speeches. It is, as Greville acutely remarks, when he takes his pen in his hand that his intellect seems to have full play. But in his speeches, though in a less degree, is to be seen an instinctive skill in putting points in their most telling manner in gliding over awkward admissions and engaging the intellect and disposition of his audience whom he was in the habit of tickling with jokes and local allusions spoken entirely for the moment they have not much permanent value in themselves and considered apart from their results and Palmerston's oratory, like that of all statesmen who aim chiefly at being parliamentary hands, was in its day overestimated, and afterwards consigned to a somewhat too complete oblivion. For in spite of much fustian and not a little insincerity, his are the speeches of a gentleman, of a brave man, who knew exactly what his aim was, and how it was to be accomplished, of one who accepted, when led astray by personal prejudices, had really large views on political morality, and who firmly believed that it was England's mission to help the oppressed of the earth, and that she was thoroughly able to execute that mission. Though Wellington can hardly have been grateful to Palmerston for constituting himself censor-in-chief of the Tory foreign policy, he made several overtures of reconciliation to the ex-secretary at war during the last days of his career as premier. The first was through Melbourne, who, however, declined to join without Huskisson and Gray. The second, made after the death of Huskisson, was through Lord Clive. But Palmerston insisted on the admission of Gray and Lansdowne to office as a sine qua non, proving thereby how closely he was now linked with the Whigs. The third, made through Crocker, was brought to a dramatic conclusion. Well, said Crocker, I will bring the matter to a point. Are you resolved, or are you not, to vote for parliamentary reform? Palmerston said, I am. Well then, said Crocker, there is no use in talking to you any more on the subject, the Canningites were irresistibly compelled, as were the Peelites after them, to throw in their lot with liberalism. End of section two.